Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. My guest this week is the Vice Chair of the Conservative Party for Youth and Member of Parliament for Hitchin and Harpenden, Bim Afalami. Bim, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Now, this weekend sees the Conservative Party's Spring Conference in Blackpool. Do you think the party is in a good place at the moment? Um, Broadly speaking, yes. I mean, bearing in mind the party's been in office now for 12 years, and look, this is a democratic uh, situation. There are... It's difficult the the longer you're in office, uh, and that's just a fact of life. But I think we're in broadly good shape, and I think that the country agrees with what we're trying to do. The debate is whether we're always, and our opposition would would have is, oh, you're not necessarily taking Hmm. the right approach to do levelling up, or you're not taking the right approach to recover from COVID or whatever, but, but actually, or to reform the NHS or whatever we're doing. But actually, I think that broadly, there's agreement on the goals that we've set, and it's our job over the next couple of years or so to show the country that we're delivering on them. And one of the main ways the, the Conservative Party and indeed the, the government at the moment is doing that is through levelling up. And by holding the conference in Blackpool, which, which is one of the most deprived communities in the country, I, th- I think that is to some extent a reflection of what the government's levelling up agenda is trying to do and trying to revive long forgotten communities like it. But do you think the levelling up white paper, which Michael Gove announced last month, which outlined what the government's plans are for these sorts of communities, goes far enough to improve places like Blackpool and other parts of the North and the Midlands? So the levelling up white paper is, I, I regard it, and I've read it, and I've spoken to Michael Gove a few times about it, actually, different aspects to it. Mm. I regard it almost as a, as a foundational stone mm. on which future policy will be based. It is not in and of itself a magic key that will achieve levelling up. And it's really important people don't think it is. But what it does is it gives a map so that in every government department, every Conservative member of parliament, everybody in industry who cares about it, every single charity that cares about it, knows the lines on which we're going and how we can achieve it. For example, the focus on these key capitals, you know, human capital, financial capital, cultural capital, social capital, various other aspects as being the key things to help an area, an individual succeed is really useful when you're somebody like me who does a lot of work on financial services and professional services in saying to the industry, look, guys, how are we improving the financial capital of people everywhere in the country? Can we say we're honestly doing that as well as we can? Okay, we think there's improvements to be made. Let's make those improvements. But without the white paper, you wouldn't almost have anything to hang that argument on. You wouldn't have anything to refer back to. So I just use that as an example of something that can be really built on 
once the white paper has been delivered and it has been. It's interesting you mentioned financial services there. And we, we know that London and the Southeast are really the economic powerhouses of the, the UK. And quite rightly, in my opinion, the government is trying to almost redistribute that across the rest of the country, primarily in the North and the Midlands. But within this whole levelling up agenda, do you think the government is running the risk of actually forgetting places in London and the Southeast and indeed other areas of the UK in trying to put so many resources into the North and the Midlands and indeed the other parts of the Union? Because there are many pockets of deprivation and many forgotten communities within London and the Southeast. Indeed, there are many forgotten uh, there are places of deprivation in my own constituency and near my own constituency. And that's why the way this has been designed is designed to benefit all parts of the country. And let me give you, let, let me give you a couple of examples, right? It's no point me just saying it. Stevenage, which is a neighbouring constituency of my own in Hertfordshire. Stevenage was one of the largest recipients of the um, Towns Fund uh, grants. I think it was over £60 million. I think £65 million Stevenage got in order to regenerate its town centre. Now, Stevenage is very much a southern town, and it was getting that. In the southwest, uh, places like Torbay and Totnes have been targeted as places that need levelling up investment. And of course, we have it in the north of England as well, uh, and the Midlands. The way I conceive of levelling up is it's, yes, it's about place, but it's really about people. Places matter because people live there. And it's about focusing on those people. Now, in some parts of the country, you find more people who need that extra push, that extra help so that they can get the right opportunities they need than in other parts of the country. But it's almost place agnostic, but focused on the people, and of, but recognising that those people can be bunched in, in, in certain parts of the country. That's how I think about it. That philosophy as well is one of the, ma- the main reasons why the Conservative Party won so many seats in the northeast, other parts of the north and the, the Midlands in that 2019 election to give Boris Johnson that 80 seat majority. But of course, the, the pandemic as well as but a number of those original plans that were promised at that election uh, on hold or certainly delayed some of those announcements. But do you think the government is really honouring its commitments to those areas through the levelling up agenda? We are honouring our commitments, but I think there needs to be a broader recognition that this is not something for one parliament, you know, indeed one party, one government. This is a generational job, and it's important that everybody recognises that to make really fundamental change does not happen overnight. And I just wouldn't be honest if I thought that it was what the investments financially or indeed educationally with the special education areas that Nadim Zahawi has has detailed and are detailed in the levelling up area, in the levelling up white paper. Hmm. What these financial or educational or other investments do is they start the process of bringing opportunity to people who have been denied it for various different reasons. And but that process needs to continue. And of course, we'll reach different challenges. So for example, a town like Stevenage going to have huge regeneration as part of this levelling up process. But you can regenerate an area, but if the local people's education standard isn't good enough that they can get the the jobs that are being created in the high-tech industries and the pharmaceutical industries that are around Stevenage that that will benefit from this, if, if the people in the local area can't get those jobs, then 
then you haven't really made that much of an improvement, even if you've got a shiny, shiny town centre. So you put the financial investment alongside the educational help, alongside the social capital that will be improved and, and built as a result of this, and then you can get somewhere, right? So that's how I think about it, though I recognise that this is not something that in politics, politicians like to say, you can easily put on a bumper sticker. So the difficulty with a lot of political communication is that it's hard to articulate fully what you're talking about in the space and time span and attention span that your typical person has for politics, which, you know, is not always that much because quite understandably, they're getting on with their lives, looking after their kids, trying to get on in life. They don't necessarily want to listen to me jabbering on all the time. So it's that that I think is tricky with the levelling up agenda. It's about how do we communicate something quite complex and quite long-term in a short-term way and make clear to people that not everything will be done now, but we are getting there. And I think that that's the job, you know, of the party and the government over the next couple of years. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right to point out, you know, it's it's fantastic to get a, a brand new shiny town centre, as you say, but it, it, there has to be material change in people's lives as a, as a result of this. And of course, at the moment, we're seeing a real cost of living crisis and it's becoming a really serious issues. Uh, tax bills are rising, fuel bills are just soaring at the moment. And this seems to be a problem which has been getting worse and worse over the, the last few weeks, even months. Do you think the government does have a handle on this problem? Definitely. I've spent, I'm talking to you now, having spent the last three, four days in Parliament, talking to my colleagues at all levels about renewable energy, about nuclear, about tax, about take-home pay, all of these issues, people are grappling with them. It's important to say that every single country is grappling with these. You know, this, these are global problems that are happening across the Western world because of what's going on in Ukraine and coming out of COVID, uh, those two things together, neither of which was any government, well, apart from Russia, um, neither of which was any government's uh, plan or desire. And so we're all having to manage it and it's difficult, but you know, I'm confident we've got the leadership and the right team to get there. Uh, on, on the fuel bills points, uh, the, the chancellor a few months ago announced this 200 pound discount on, on, on fuel bills and it's a compulsory uh, discount, but there are many who simply won't see any, any benefit from this. So do you, again, do you think that's a, a fair method to try and offset some of the impact of, of this? Because yes, there's a, a discount this year, but it'll be repaid over the next few years. And uh, in particular, students as well, for example, students who are living in private accommodation and halls of residence who may not see the benefit of it this year, but will end up paying for the, the, the return over the next few years and throughout their study. Again, do you, do you think that's a, a fair way of trying to offset what's happening at the moment with this cost of living crisis? So the first thing to say is that the help is coming in different ways. Hmm. First aspect is council tax rebate of 150 pounds. That goes to everybody. So, uh, sorry, it doesn't go to everybody. It goes to people with houses uh, of bands A to D. I, most people, apart from the people in the most expensive homes. So that's the first thing. You're talking about the 200 pound uh, discount that gets paid back gradually. Yes, you've described that correctly. However, we're also giving increasing the eligibility for the warm homes discount, 
which for those people who don't know what I'm talking about, um, you shouldn't worry because you're not, you, you, you don't need it. If you don't know what I'm talking about, you don't need it. But basically it is for, for the, some of the hardest press people, extra money uh, so that they can deal with the tough months in winter. And then on top of that, we are um, giving money to local authorities for hardship funds because local authorities often are the people that really know their area best. They know their people best. And then giving them a lot of extra money for hardship funds to those people as well. So actually it's quite a sort of multi, multifaceted, which is just a complicated word for you know lots of different ways mm. of us trying to deal with the problem. And I think that for the time being, that's the right approach, but let's be very honest about this. None of us know how, how all this Ukraine thing's mm. gonna go. None of us know what's gonna happen to energy prices over the next few months, because trust me, if I did, I'd be a lot richer than I am. Um, so we will, and I know the Chancellor watches this stuff on a literally a daily basis, the different prices, what's going on in the markets. I'm confident that if things change in a fundamental way, he will change as well and make, and, and make those decisions over time. Yeah. But I think right now we're in the right place once we see, as we've got to wait and see what happens. And the, the, the war in Ukraine has really placed a spotlight on the UK's and indeed Europe's and the Western world's reliance on Russian oil and gas for fuel. So the, the Prime Minister rightly is trying to look at removing that dependence and trying to find alternative sources of energy for providing fuel. So he was in the, the Middle East uh, yesterday. He was looking at restarting the uh, fracking process as well. Do you think that is the right thing to do at the moment? Or do you think more needs to be put into looking at renewable and more sustainable forms of energy? Well, the Prime Minister hasn't changed our position on fracking. Um, you know, our position is the same as it was, which we came out with a couple of years ago, which is at the moment we didn't think there was a case for it, but that we always remain with an open mind. I think that's sensible. Um, as for the broader point around renewable, sustainable energy, I, I do a lot around this agenda. Uh, I, I'm very, very clear what we need to do. We need to accelerate our wind energy. We need to get more of it faster. We need more solar. We need more wind. We need more hydroelectric uh, in areas where it works. Uh, and we definitely, definitely, definitely need more nuclear and we need it faster. Uh, and so what I am doing, working with colleagues and, and, and uh, very much advocating for are more of all of our renewable energy. And this is not per se because of the climate change issue, though, of course, um, that's very important. It's actually for energy security. If, if we want to be in control of our own energy supply to keep the lights on here in Britain, we want to be generating as much of that energy ourselves in a sustainable fashion. So even if you didn't care about climate change at all, you should still support more wind, more nuclear, more hydroelectric, because it's, it means it's energy that, that we are not dependent on Russia or frankly certain other places either. So it's a complete no-brainer for me. And I think the issue is just how quickly can we get this stuff on stream? Yeah. And of course, the, the Chancellor Rishi Sunak is going to deliver his spring statement next week. So, so taking into what we've taking into account what we've discussed today, what would you like to hear him announce? I'd like to hear his assessment of how he how he finds the inflationary difficulties in the economy. Mm -hmm. I'd like to hear his assessment of 
the sort of judgments and how he'll be making his decisions in the week and month, weeks and months to come about the, uh, the energy issues that we talked about. And broadly, how we can start to put into policy his May's lecture that he gave a few weeks ago, which was a, uh, and I don't expect any of your listeners to just pick this up because it got swallowed with the sort of Ukraine stuff quite rightly and understandably, but it was really his, his philosophy on how he thinks the economy should work and how the British economy should, should develop in the years to come. And, and it was a brilliant lecture and I wrote a review of it in the Sunday Telegraph at the time. But I think that now, obviously, the, the job is to implement those things and to put them in policy. And so it'd be great to hear him set out how he wants to do that uh, in a policy making perspective. You, you mentioned there that you know, m- many listeners won't have read about this uh, lecture that the Chancellor delivered or, or seen much about it, again, quite rightly be- and naturally because of the, the horrendous war that's going on in Ukraine. So for, for listeners who haven't read about it or heard much about it, could you just give an outline of what the Chancellor's uh, vision, if you like, is for how Gosh, the economy should be That right? really is putting me on the spot because now <laughs> if I get... You know, I'm sure his team will be listening and, you know, I speak to them a lot, but, you know, right. Okay. Let me do my best. Okay. <laughs> so, um, but good question. Uh, let me do my best. <laughs> so really he, he, he talks about the need to grow, strengthen and develop what he calls a culture of enterprise in the country. Uh, and the way fundamentally we do that is by focusing on three things, capital, and that's investment and money, people, and growing the strengths of our people and making sure they're as, as, as best placed to take advantages of what's there in the modern economy, and ideas, and ideas being the thing that almost link those two things, capital and people together, and make them as productive as possible. And he talks different ways of how to do that. He, as an aside, he, he sort of slays some important Um, mythical dragons like the idea that tax cuts always pay for themselves they don't some tax cuts do when they're done at the right time of on the right things uh but they don't always pay for themselves sort of thing that some people say and that's not true he talks about that he also talks about the need that when you have an aging society as is happening in every western country you are going to spend more money on health and social care there's no world in which you end up spending less money on health and social care in a context where everybody's living longer. And I don't think that's a bad thing, neither does he. But once you accept that as a fact of politics, Mm -hmm. then you've got to make sure that your economy is growing fast enough that you can afford to pay for those things. Because if our economy is not growing fast enough, we're getting poorer and poorer every year. And I'm afraid with COVID, you know, ultimately the country got poorer. I mean, there's no other way of, of, of describing it. Obviously that wasn't our fault and it happened to every country in the world. But now we need to make sure that we are growing faster than the increased amounts that we need for our public services and other things that the government needs to spend money on, like defence spending, for example. So we really, really need to focus on growing that economy, having as the the centre point capital, people and ideas, building and developing that culture of enterprise. And really how we do that in policy terms is what we now need to answer, the question to which we need to answer. Yeah, th- thank you for that overview of uh, the, the, what the Chancellor was announcing there. And there, there are some quite big ideas with, within that that that's he announced. And we're just over two years into this government since that 2019 election. But perhaps as a consequence of the pandemic and 
other big events and lockdown, whatever it may be, we haven't actually seen many major changes or big ideas to focus this administration. So do you think Boris Johnson is really making the most of that 80 seat majority? Well, I think he's actually been a very, very unlucky prime minister, Um, you know, to start office and have COVID. Mm. I mean, that literally hasn't happened in 100 years. And then, just as we're coming out of COVID and having made the right calls on COVID broadly, I think, uh, and I think people recognise that, um, the Prime Minister made the right decisions on COVID, just as we're about to reap the benefits from that, you then get a war in Ukraine. Yeah. So <laughs> the poor, poor guy can't get a break. Um, so, you know, it has, we've had two massive crises uh, and underpinning it, underpinning it all, we've still managed to get the levelling up white paper out. We've still got the fastest growing economy in the G7. You know, a lot is going right, but obviously it's been hard to get people to focus on other things when you've got those two huge, um, huge uh, uh, issues that have come out of left field, as they say. You're absolutely right to point out that it, it has been given a really bad set of cards here. And the, the, in recent weeks, there have been a number of really big scandals which have damaged Boris Johnson in the eyes of the public. Uh, the, the Owen Paterson lobbying affair and the Downing Street parties, just to, to name a couple of examples. However, opinion does seem to be turning in, in the eyes of the public because the, the conflict in Ukraine developed and the Prime Minister has, really has led the international response on this. Perhaps a, a cynic might point out, do you, do you think the, the Russia-Ukraine war has actually saved Boris Johnson's premiership? No, I don't think it, you know, I mean, that's sort of a question that, you know, I study a lot of history and um, sort of question historians like asking about things that happened 50 years ago or 100 years ago. Um, I really think that all we can do in life or in politics is play the ball in front of you and do it the best you can. And there's no point talking about what happens what sort of historical analysis people will bring in, in years to come. What you've got to do is do the job right. We talked about levelling up. We've got to get that right. We talked about energy prices, living standards, inflation. We've got to get that right. And we've got to make sure we make the right decisions on social care in the NHS and making sure those reforms work properly. That's ultimately the test. Mm-hmm. And people are not going to vote in an election in two, two and a half years' time on the basis of what you did or didn't do before. They'll make the base. They'll make it on the basis of your record, and then what you propose to do going forward. And obviously, how we've managed all the crises will be part of that. But it's. I really think that politics is always about the future, as is the country. Hence, why I'm very happy to be the vice chair for youth. Mm-hmm. Um, things are always about the future, mm-hmm. uh, and that's what we, you know, we're going to have to be judged on. You were quite critical of um, Boris Johnson's government and leadership quite recently in a couple of articles you'd written for Conservative Home, even wrote one article that said that the government was losing the benefit of the doubt, in, particularly in the wake of the Patterson scandal. Do you think the Prime Minister has done enough to regain your trust and support and is starting to win back the benefit of the doubt, if you like? I, I wasn't critical. I was I was just presenting an analysis okay. of the broader political um, situation. Uh, and I personally made the point that the Prime Minister is the party and the country's greatest asset. But the broader point, um, I, I think that when you have things like the war in the Ukraine, indeed, when you have the living standards issues that we've seen, 
I think it brings a lot of things into perspective. And I think a lot of the political rows that happened last year seem, at least to me, as, you know, comparatively small. That's not to say they're unimportant. Um, you know, standards in public life, own partisan, that stuff matters. Mm-hmm. Don't get me wrong. But the, the really, really important stuff I think we're dealing with now, and indeed COVID being, again, something else of, of critical importance. It's life and death, literally. So um, I think that's what we're focused on. Okay, well, let's move away from th- this for a moment and pick upon your new role as vice chair of the Conservative Party for youth. You recently took over from Andrew Bowie, who was a, a previous guest on this show. What plans do you have for taking young Conservatives forward? It's quite simple. Increase membership, mm-hmm. increase engagement, increase energy and to make sure that young conservatives have not just a voice in the conservative party, because they will have that with me, but have a voice in the country. People who are young, Mm -hmm. who feel that the conservative party speaks to them. It's making sure that those people have a voice, making sure that those people feel that the young conservatives are something they want to join and making sure that those people have a voice in our country and our society. Because look, dare I say it, I think a lot of people think that when you're young, you know, being left wing is what is the zeitgeist. You've got to be cool. That's what that's what younger people are. And I understand that. And to be perfectly honest, it was exactly the same when I was that age. You know, it's it's not new. Uh, I don't want anybody to feel embarrassed that they're a conservative. I want people to be loud and proud about that. And hopefully as vice chair for youth, what I'll be helping to do is to is to help them be proud to be conservatives, articulate their their ideas, go and campaign, go and contribute to policy, go and do the sort of work at universities or schools where they are to to spread the message because the history, history is ultimately driven by ideas. Politics is ultimately, when you strip it down, driven by ideas and beliefs. And those who are conservative, or indeed those who think they just might be conservative, what I want to do is to bring them on board. Okay, so I mean that that's a great great platform to put put yourself on, and as an, an active member of Young Conservatives, it's music to my ears. Really, the Young Conservatives—they're the fastest growing membership group within the whole party. So, why do you think that is? The short answer is I don't know. Um, I am. You're completely right. I, I think. So this is not born out of any evidence. This is just a hunch <laughs> that a lot of young people are sick of being told what they have to be. They were sick under Jeremy Corbyn of being told they had to be left wing or you weren't, you weren't young or you weren't cool. They were sick of being told what they had to agree with. You have to agree with the left. And I just think there are a lot of young people that are conservatives. And that's why ultimately they're joining the young conservatives. But by the way, I don't think we have enough young conservative members. I want to see more every single week. I'm, I'm asking for that at the moment. I, I wish I'd be able to, I wish I could tell you the, the numbers. Um, because I've asked for the, the data and I haven't got it yet. But I really hope that since I've taken, since I've um, come on board, we haven't, we've had an increase in membership. And if we haven't, I'll be pushing to make sure that we have, you know, because it's one thing feeling conservatives, nothing voting conservative. I want people to join the party uh, and campaign with the party and feel proud and, and, and keen to do so. Uh, and that's what I'll be working on. And, and with young conservatives becoming such a, a large part of the party's structure now, how, how do you think a, an increasingly younger presence within the party will impact on policy, particularly as party conference attendance demographics appear to be getting younger and younger each year? 
Yeah, so, so this is something I'm afraid, I'm not sure that everybody in the party has worked out. Um, I think there is a growing energy in what you might describe as the under 30s or so in the Conservative Party. And that voice is, always makes its way to be heard. You know, it's like talented people in an organisation. They can be blocked for a while, but ultimately the talented people will get through. And I think that uh, the Conservative Party will hear the voice of its young members. Uh, and I'm very determined to make sure that the party hears that. And one of the things that I'll be doing at the spring conference is starting that process. And on your point about trying to get more young people to to join the party or, or even not so much to join the party, but just to, to vote Conservative. When we look at the state of the country at the moment, the, the tax burdens at its highest rate since the 1960s, the national debts over two trillion pounds, there's a real cost of living crisis, housing shortage and university tuition fee repayment rates are rising. When, when you take all of that into account, what can a Conservative government offer young voters and young people? I think the Conservative government can offer young people the same things that the Conservative governments have always offered young people who have aspirations for themselves and their families and their communities, mm. which is to have a growing economy so you've got opportunities to, to get on in life, mm. to get on the housing ladder so you can provide security to yourself and your family, to provide a thriving third sector and, and charitable sector so that you can contribute positively to your local community and critically to provide, to make decisions best for the long-term not decisions that will only you know last a week or so because if you make decisions for the long term the country that the young people will inherit will be a better country and i think that fundamentally those are the things the conservative party offers young people but of course underneath that there's every you know every single department every single policy uh, needs to be thought of in that context as well but that's sort of how i see it philosophically and fundamentally Okay, so ju just to, to finish then, the, the Prime Minister will give his speech to attendees at the Spring Conference on Saturday. What would you like to hear from him? I mean, it's, it's interesting because, I mean, the, the difficulty, of course, is the Ukraine is there. And I think it's, it's very tough to make a speech in the context of an international crisis of this, of this magnitude, mm -hmm. uh, because it's a party speech, but obviously there's something more important than party going on. Uh, and I just think that he'll have to obviously deal with that balance uh, and I expect him to talk about the Ukraine and, and, and what he wants to do there. But in addition to that, I hope he will get a space to, to give a bit of a sense as to how he's going to approach the cost of living issues you know, in the autumn and how we're going to start to make more progress on the NHS social care reforms, uh, levelling up and various other areas. So really, it's a sort of midpoint speech in the parliament, mm -hmm. um, but... Uh, with the with the understanding that he's going to have to spend a lot of time talking about international affairs, which isn't typically what you would do at this sort of speech. Okay, Bima Falami, thank you very much for coming on the show. No problem, absolute pleasure. Thank you. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.